welcome to Concord Matters. We have a simple goal here in Concord Matters, to seek unity in the confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think the Apostle Paul says it well from Romans 15, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we seek this harmony as one with one voice by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. Because the book of Concord is not just some other book, but we believe that it is in accord with God's holy word, which is why we believe teach, and confess it. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the, Luther, of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for joining us on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Today we are getting to the beginning. We finally are getting to the our chief articles of the faith in the Augsburg Confession. I would encourage you over the last number of programs that we have studied of the preface, some of the history to the Augsburg Confession, which is just, there's always more to learn. And especially as we went through the Nicene and the Apostles and the Athanasian Creed last time, because it is it is such an amazing thing to be able to read. And we think, I know it all. And then all of a sudden you study it again and you don't. And I think that's very true even for today as we get back to the Article 1 of the Augsburg Confession, just speaking about God. <laughs> you know, who is God? And you think, oh my gosh, we're going to talk about that again. But it is so important because if you talk to your friends and other people, you say, who is God? And you might get a lot of different opinions. So how do we do so faithfully, according to scripture, and also boldly? So open up your book of Concord, open up your Bible, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Augsburg Confession, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome the Reverend Pastor Jonathan Busher of Zion Lutheran Church and School in Mount Pulaski, Illinois. Pastor Busher, welcome to Concord Matters. Hi, thanks Brady. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, you know, we, we've been together on KFUO before, before by time here on Concord Matters, but just, this is our first time together on Concord Matters. So tell us about yourself, your church, and your school, and your family as well. All right, very good. Yeah, I um, get to be the pastor here at Zion, and we have a, a congregation and a school, and it's been in this community for a really long time, and I've gotten to just be here for the last eight or so years of that. Um, and so I'm here with uh, my wife, Sarah, and we have five boys, and they get to go to school here, so I get to be in the same building with them uh, throughout the day, so that's that's a lot of fun for me to see the kids, but certainly also to be with the people on, on Sunday morning as well. So, um, but yeah, I've uh, been a pastor now for a little over 10 years total, but uh, spent uh, most of my time here in Pulaski. So it is It is Mount Pulaski, though. Isn't that correct, the name of the town? Yeah, I mean, Mount is probably being pretty generous, but uh, it is actually <laughs> higher than most of the Illinois area around us. But uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it is Mount Pulaski officially. Got it. It was my, my first call was in North Prairie, Wisconsin, and it was neither North nor Prairie. But <laughs> nonetheless, right. that's how they named it. So yeah, I totally understand. So, Pastor, um, we are in 
uh, the God. I mean, that's what we're going to talk about today right. from the Augsburg Confession. And and as we look at this, I'm going to read the beginning note that we have, which reminder to our listeners, we are studying from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House. And in this, we are on page 31 of the Augsburg Confession. I would encourage you continuously as we study this to look at the pictures. On the left, you have of Gregory Bruick, uh, which is a courageous uh, Lutheran layman of this time period, important background of history. We've covered quite a bit of this, but I just wanted to highlight that picture that's there, which brings out even more of the history of when we look at the Augsburg Confession. Today, particularly, we're going to be looking at Article 1, and I want to start with the note and then get to a very basic question to start off our time this morning. Uh, this morning. So looking at Chief Articles of the Faith, Article 1, which is about God, the note. Martin Luther never intended to start a new church, but rather to purify the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The Augsburg Confession strongly affirms the doctrine of the Trinity confessed at the Council of Nicaea in 325, and later affirmed by the Council of Constantinople in 381. God is one divine essence in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The scriptures reveal this great mystery confessed by all Christians. During the Reformation, radical groups espouse various forms of earlier heresies. The Augsburg Confession condemns the ancient heresies concerning God. Article 1 proves that Lutheranism is deeply anchored in the historic doctrine of biblical Christianity. It embraces the faith of the church through the ages and rejects all the errors of the church the church has rejected. So, Pastor, let's just start real simple. Why is it good, right, and salutary that they start with God when they talk about faith as Christians? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a good question because, you know, when they're writing up the Augsburg Confession, you got to start somewhere. Um, so, Article 1, they have God as being the first article, which is a great <laughs> a great place to start, right? Um, and so... You'll notice when we talk about the different, you know, articles that you could talk about things in a couple different uh, orders, um, I guess. But in the Augsburg Confession, we see that, especially in the first three articles, I mean, there's kind of a uh, 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 a method to the madness where you start with mm -hmm. who is God, uh, and then Article Two, you kind of get to the question about who is who am I as in humanity, but in particular that I have that I've sinned in the fall. And then the third article is all about Jesus, which is the solution to the sin. So, you know, who is God? Who am I? And what is what has Jesus done for me? So that's maybe a little bit of the reason why you start the way you do, but especially beginning with who is who is God? I mean, you, you kind of have to answer that question first before you move on from there. And that's a good point when we think about our current context, which is why we always say here in Concord Matters that we just don't read an old book that has nothing to do with today. But it this is very re relevant for us because, like I said, if you had a room of just friends from the neighborhood and you were to say, who is God? And hopefully there's not a big, you know, big argument or around the campfire or something. But just, hey, who is God? And you had 20 people there. You probably would have very different opinions from those 20 different people. Um, and so who is God is 
Because if we don't get that right, that's an identity piece. Because if we don't know who God is, then we don't correctly know who we are because Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. So we don't have God right, then we might not even have us right. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that that's a, that's a great way to understand it too, that, um, you know, if you look at some of the different surveys that they do for, um, you know, people's thoughts on religions in America, around the world, and they're asked, you know, do you believe in God? Yes or no. And uh, the overwhelming majority of people are going to say, yes, you know, I, I believe in God. But of course, that only gets you so far. You got to ask the follow-up question, like, you know, who is God? Like, uh, describe what you mean by God. And then, like you said, you got 20 people in the room. You're probably going to get 20 different answers when they try and answer that question. You know, at face value, almost everyone believes in God. There are certainly, you know, atheists, those who say they don't believe in God. But even if almost everyone believes in God, how they're going to answer that question is still going to, there's going to be a lot of differences there. And I like how you also brought up, as we go through the Augsburg Confession, it's very, very clear. Uh, they, I mean, Melanchthon and others of the Concordians really thought through how they should place this and how they should organize it. As you said so well, you talk about God, and then you got to talk about us. And why do we even need God? And then, okay, then who is this Jesus? And then Article 4 shows us how does this, you know, how does this Jesus and what he's all done come to us? And then even more so, five speaks us about how does how does this brought to people, you know, the ministry, the proclamation of the gospel. I mean, go down the whole list. I'm excited for you, our listeners, to continually think about how this is very well organized, not perfect by any means, but very well organized for simple-minded folks like myself to say, okay, this has a natural flow. And if we don't begin with God, then, you know, where else are we going to begin as Christian people? Because we are called Christians which points us to God above ourselves. Now, Pastor, one other thing I wanted to highlight is in the Augsburg Confession and also the Book of Concord quite often, is it will say this is what we believe, but also will say what we don't believe. And that's something we I don't say we've done well in our current culture with. Um, so any thoughts on why that's an important reality for us as Christians, not only to say what we believe and confess it, but also what we don't believe? Why is that important? Yeah, right. I mean, you've there's kind of, like you said, two different ways to approach something where you say, you know, like, this is what I believe, making that kind of affirmative confession of faith. Um, but sometimes, uh, and as we might see today, especially when we talk about the Trinity, you know, and the mystery that it is, sometimes it's almost easier to say, you know, these are the things we don't believe. Um, and there's some things that we have to reject. And We'll see that at the end of the article where they kind of list some things that uh, go out of bounds. And so you, you're probably better off doing a little bit of both. I'm into that. Yeah, I'm into that. So, Pastor, anything else you want to highlight before we start digging in to the Augsburg Confession? Um, yeah, I think we could probably dig right in. But, yeah, there's a lot of different things we can talk about and and, and things we can and mention. But... I think that's a, a great place to start is, you know, who is God and what is he like? All right, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, once again, we are page 31 of the Reader's Edition of the Lutheran Confessions, page 31. We'll begin and we confess. Our churches teach with common consent that the decree of the Council of Nicaea about the unity of the divine essence and the three persons is true. 
It is to be believed without any doubt. God is one divine essence who is eternal, without a body, without parts, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. He is the maker and preserver of all things, visible and invisible. From Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. I'm going to stop there for a moment here, Pastor. Is One of the highlights that also came in the note is that they were not trying to confess something new, but they wanted to simply confess not only what the church has always said, but what clearly Scripture says. And so what what is that simple truth about the triune God? Yeah, right. That, um, And maybe one thing to notice right away, that Article 1 is, is not all that long. Um, some of the other articles that you'll get into, like... Article four, you know, I'm not signed up uh, to talk about that. So that'll, (laughs) that'll take a little bit longer. But I mean, one thing that tells us is that this article really wasn't up for debate as far as the Reformation was concerned. And like the dates talk about in 325, 381, you know, uh, 1200 years before the Reformation, that's when this was really hotly debated and people went on and on about all this stuff. And so even when the Roman Catholics respond in the confutation, they're basically like, yeah, we kind of agree with article one. And, and then our apology, the response to that, it's like, we're just going to say this again. It's, it's really not up for debate because at least we're in agreement about this, right? That it's, uh, there is one God, there's three persons. And, um, you know, you could certainly say a lot, but they really didn't have to in the Augsburg Confession. And that's where it's really important that this is something that unites us and kind of shows the people who are in the Christian faith and those who are outside of it, is that if we can't agree on Article 1, then there's no reason to get to Article 2, because you're not, you're not even on the same page, that you have this God who is one divine essence, meaning that we would be considered monotheist, but yet we're saying there's three persons. Okay, so I'll get to that a little bit later. But so you have one God who is eternal. Now, any thoughts on kind of break down some of these words, any thoughts on what does it mean to be eternal? God is eternal. What does that mean? Yeah, right. And yeah, there's sometimes we call them different attributes of God. And we'll talk about more of those, I'm sure. But yeah, one of those things that God is that that we are not is he's eternal. And it's it's almost impossible for you know, to comprehend that, you know, because we're limited, finite beings, you know, we have a beginning, we have an end, but God has always been like there, you can't Mm -hmm. say there was before God or anything like that. Um, And so for God to be eternal, no beginning, no ends, you know, oftentimes in our churches, we have artwork. Uh, A lot of times the circle is used to describe God because there's no beginning or end of a circle. And sometimes, especially for Trinity, like during our, our green liturgical season, we have this banner in church. It's those three overlapping, kind of like a Venn diagram circles is that symbol for the Trinity, that there's no beginning, no end, three in one. And that's interesting, too, because part of the definition of eternal is without beginning, without end, um, but also a holiness. So, like, and that's hard for us to understand, too, because, well, we're not holy, <laughs> That right. here's someone, here's, here's, well, where perfection comes is from God himself. So he's 
not understandable in one sense. He has a he has attributes that we'll never be able to understand, but yet we understand it because throughout Scripture he does not sin. Throughout Scripture he he's a creator of all good things. Um, as I mentioned, he's a sanctifier. This is sanctification made holy. So we, although we don't become completely holy, we do receive this holiness only from him because he is holy. So if I try to give you my holiness. This is not going to go so well, but you get it from him, then we can trust that it is holy. So this eternal, ununderstandable God has become known to us. This is John chapter one language, right? That we, because well, some people in our culture today would say, well, you don't, we can't understand God, therefore you can't say anything. Well, that's not true because we do know some things that he is eternal, that he is holy and that, you know, there's obviously manifested in Christ. Any, any thoughts on any other thoughts on eternal? I mean, we could talk all day on it. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I mean, that's um, if you kind of talk about different concepts or ideas of God, I mean, at the very least, you know, God has to be above everything else. Right. And so if we're thinking of things that have been around a long time or things that have existed for a long time, but God is kind of above and and beyond that, sometimes we use the words uh, transcendent to talk about God. It means that he is you know, apart and, and separate from his creation, that he is uh, wholly other. Sometimes you'll come across that word as well, that um, God is um, beyond our comprehension, but he does um, what's called condescend, which is usually it's an insult, right? If someone's condescending, but when God does it, it's basically he allows us to understand at least some of who he is. Um, he does that in scripture he does that in nature. We can talk about that too, but most of all, he does that in Jesus. And that's another, I mean, this is kind of a, a, a fun reality that we have the revealed God that we're able to see, you know, we're able to understand in Christ, but also we know that God is working in creation, which is why we always, this is the other part we always have to be careful on. And it's not really necessary addressed in this article is that, are we worshiping the creator or are we worshiping the creation? Which is something why I think article one is so vital for all of us to be able to confess it, talk about it, and then confess it again, because we can get lost in the weeds so quickly where all of a sudden, you know, you're going to your mountain in Illinois and I'm going <laughs> to my other mountains in Minnesota, obviously not, but you look outside and you see creation and how easy it is for us to say, wow, look at how great creation is. And we forget to actually thank the God, the triune God who created it all. Any thoughts on that? That's very important for us in today's world. Yeah, you're right. And that's, um, if you look around the different religions in the world, I mean, that's that's exactly where some of them get stuck. I mean, you, you see the majesty of creation and there have been religions that worship it, right? There's a God of the sun, a God of the sea and, and, and things like that. Um, but as it has been revealed to us, it's not just the majesty of creation. The one who makes it um, gets even uh, more glory, right? That it's um, the one who is the creator is above the creation itself. So that's very well put in, in this confession. So it starts, one divine essence, meaning perfect, holy, who is eternal, without a body. Now, that's an interesting <laughs> um, place to put that, without a body. 
uh, obviously we believe that he that God does become incarnate in Christ, but overall, you know, God doesn't really have a body, um, which is kind of crazy to imagine because one person has a body and the rest doesn't. Um, how, how would you break that down for us still living in confirmation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's um, <laughs> an interesting thing to kind of, to point out, but um, one of the things that Jesus says, it's in John chapter four, he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well and they're going back and forth. You know, we worship in Samaria, you worship in Jerusalem, back in the, which one's the real place. And Jesus has this line where he says, God is spirit and we must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so mm. if we're talking about the one true God, we, you know, it's true to say he does not have a body, that, that God is spirit. And you're right, there's this special case uh, for Jesus as he comes becomes incarnate. But um, that's true that, that God doesn't have a body. And so that's something that we need to confess. Mm. And right. Yeah. Cause, uh, well, I think this is what Dr. Gibbs would say in class quite a bit is, well, Jesus said so. So it's, uh, true. Um, <laughs> but we do understand that, that there, there is, there is not a body, which makes the incarnation even more important without parts. Um, obviously emphasizing that without a body, so it doesn't have hands or feet and so forth, except for Jesus. All right. Of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. Now, it does speak here um, of something very important that we forget this too, that God has all power, wisdom, and goodness. And we sometimes might try to think we can outthink God or that we know more than God or that God is not present. But here is very much so, you know, if he can create the universe, well, guess what? Then he has all the power. Any thoughts on power, wisdom, and goodness? Yeah. I mean, th right. There's just kind of this list that could go on and on about these characteristics and attributes that God has. And I mean, you know, we could try and think of, you know, someone who's really powerful, right? Like there's the strongest man in the world competition, but then even in the stories we make up, there's like superheroes and they're super strong and stuff like that. Um, but then when you get to this whole other category where it's infinite power, I mean, not, now you're just almost talking about something else and something else entirely. And so for God to have infinite power, it's, we can't, you know, even comprehend it, that a wonderful example of that is, you know, God creates the world and he does it just by talking. Like, I mean, mm. uh, we can do a lot of stuff, but, you know, we can't just speak things into being like that's, that's way beyond our, our capacity, but it's just an example of how uh, infinite God's power is. As it says in Genesis 1, I mean, it, it, this is how it begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Showing us, once again, if there's any question about God's power, it is there. If you look at the wisdom literature, the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, ultimately, we interpret all of that by saying, well, who is the wisest? And it was not Solomon, you know, it was not David, even though they were wise. It is always pointing us back to God, who has the ultimate wisdom. And then goodness, so this goes back to Mark um, 10, when they ask him, good teacher, what must I do to in inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So you have all of these things that are constantly reaffirmed throughout scripture about who God is. And if you actually think about this, if God is all powerful and yet died on the cross, if God is all wise, but submitted himself, or how would you say it before? Uh, 
um, condescended to us? Or how would you say that? Yeah, right. Yeah. When God condescends, it's it's good for us. He's not making fun <laughs> of us. us. He's just yeah, uh, right. uh, trying to allow ourselves to uh, comprehend. So I probably picked this up in some class and I can't give proper credit, but you know, if you tried to explain yourself to an insect, I mean, like how far could you get? Like how much could that insect understand? And, but the reality is an insect and, and, and our reality is closer than our reality and God's reality because mm. both us and any other, you know, bug in the world, uh, or animal, you know, we're all finite, but God is infinite. So it's, you know, mm. uh, if you <laughs> try imagine explaining yourself to a, an animal and uh, you might begin to understand what God is doing when he explains himself to us. Absolutely. So, and it continues, he's the maker and preserver of all things visible and invisible, which is the same language, obviously, we confess in the Nicene Creed. It quotes Nehemiah 9, verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. This might be a good time for us to consider, and for me, is maybe reread the creation account, because it really brings up not only did he make it, but he still preserves it in our lives today, whether we see it or don't see it. Pastor, with about a minute left before our break, how do you want to um, uh, continue to profess about this God who is a maker and preserver of all things. Yeah. I mean, it's something that, um, when we realize the truth of it, um, and this is kind of what Paul does as well, when he kind of explains a truth about God, he can really only go so far. And then really he just breaks out into this song or this doxology. We see it in the gospels where he just says, I mean, praise be to God where he not only has created us, but continues to uphold that creation and preserve us that he doesn't just, you know, make us and abandon us and say, Hey, good luck over there, guys. He, uh, uh, creates us, but stays with us and, and preserves us, you know, and if I think it was Luther who said, you know, if he took his hand away, you know, but for an instant, you know, uh, we would cease to be. And so God doesn't just create, he also preserves. And so we always have something to be thankful for and always something to give praise to God about. And this is why when it talks about how uh, he defends me against all evil, against the danger and guards and protects me from all evil, excuse me, I keep forgetting this, all this he does, all the fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me and still takes care of them. That's what I was looking for in the first article of the creed. Keep forgetting this. Um, But it's just a reminder of it isn't like God created everything and then disappears. You know, obviously this is really true with the incarnation and life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But also we believe that even though we don't see it, God is still doing it and caring for us and his creation, and especially us um, when he has saved us in Jesus. So right now we need to take our break, though. We are studying the first article of the Augsburg Confession, confessing the truth of what we believe of the triune God in Article 1. And we'll be right back. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Put this wisdom of God into practice by listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple, 
and faithful pastors from around the world help sharpen my faith in Christ every episode. I know you'll be blessed by listening and studying God's Word with us. Listen to Sharper Iron weekdays at 8 a.m. on KFUO and on demand at KFUO.org, the KFUO radio app, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are studying and confessing the truth of the triune God in Article 1 of the Augsburg Confession with Pastor Jonathan Busher of Zion Lutheran Church in Mount Pulaski, Illinois. Pastor, we are uh, just on the number two paragraph, not paragraph two, number two in the chief article of the faith. Um, and anything else you want to highlight in those first two portions of Article 1? Yeah, maybe that um, something we can point out here is that when we talk about this article of God and kind of as we understand it, you know, we, we talk about God as being triune. We understand the Christian God to be the, the Trinity that nowhere in scripture is the word Trinity used. And I, I think if I'm looking right, they don't even say the word Trinity in the article itself. And mm, so mm-hmm. basically this is a, a, a term that the church has agreed upon to, use this as the description of God as you kind of build your case throughout scriptures, right? You can't, you can't really just go to one verse and say like, here's kind of where that teaching is. You kind of have to use the whole uh, revelation of scripture and say, you know, this is who God is. And as the discussion in the church has continued, we've agreed to use this word um, Trinity. It's, it's the best we can do. Correct. And that's a good reminder that when, if somebody were to come to you, our listeners, and say, well, the Trinity is not in the Bible, don't fall into despair. Um, Not having the word Trinity in the Bible was not the foundation of your faith. Um, Obviously, the triune God is. But to look at it, it's a way of us confessing as clear as we possibly can of an infinite God, that what he's revealed to us in Scripture indicates that there somehow is one God yet three persons. So, Pastor, let's continue on, numbers three and four, because it breaks it down a little bit for us as we um, are reminded of, okay, what does Scripture say, and how do we then explain it, or better yet, proclaim it? Verse Number three. Yet there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are of the same essence and power. Our churches use the term person as the fathers have used it. We use it to signify not a part or a quality in another, but that which subsists of itself. Okay. So we see a number of places in scripture of where we even see or the word, the words that are used, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are from Matthew 28, verse 19, which is at the end and beginning. This is part of the great commission, we often will call it. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 19 and into 20, where he specifically says, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm trying to think of other parts of Scripture where we see the triune God at work. And one in particular is when Jesus was baptized. He was baptized and the Father said, this is my Son um, with whom I am well pleased. And then the dove comes down and lands on Jesus's head, if you will, or you know, comes down there in the form of a dove, the Holy Spirit does. And there we see the triune God. And I'm trying to think, and maybe I'm putting you in the spot here, Pastor, <laughs> other parts that really kind of lay it out, maybe not maybe not as direct, but as, as, as all over the place in Scripture. Any thoughts? Yeah, I know. I, I'm Probably except for the very end of Matthew, like you said, where Jesus comes right in and says, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Um, it might not get much more clearer than that, um, where uh, we can certainly maybe read it in. Like if we go back to the very beginning in the creation mm-hmm. account, we see God creating, uh, he's creating with his word and we connect that with Jesus being the word of God. And there's the spirit of God hovering over the waters. And so we kind of read scripture with Trinitarian eyes, which is, which is good. Um, but it's not always as explicit as we might like uh, to have it. But then again, it's, it, it is a mystery. And so that kind of comes along with it. And that brings me to another point. As we confess this, one, 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 some advice that I got from a mentor pastor was, you know, often we try to explain it by using what we see. So like, um, God is like an apple, you know, and, and, and so whatever it might be, or like water, um, and it breaks it down from there. And the more I remember, I was trying to explain like, okay, how can we actually teach this? Cause I was going to teach in confirmation class. And he said, Brady, here's the deal. If you ever take a worldly object and try to, to, uh, speak about the Trinity, you're probably doing a heresy. Actually, <laughs> right. just assume you're doing a heresy when you do that. Yes. Because it is something we can't just take a worldly thing and say, that's the same thing. You know, St. Patrick tried to do it, you know, and and others. And some of it probably was helpful. But but it's it was almost like it's that circle like you spoke about. It might be our best thing because it doesn't have a beginning or an end. But then we just kind of have to stop there. So I, unless you have a really good analogy that is not <laughs> at all a heresy. I don't know. I don't have one. Yeah, no, and that, I mean, you mentioned uh, bad analogies in St. Patrick's, so I've got to encourage anyone listening, if you haven't seen it yet, and maybe most have, uh, Pastor Hans Feeney, who does Lutheran satire, he made that wonderful St. Patrick's bad analogies, where they do exactly that. They kind of go through some of these uh, analogies of making uh, comparisons to things we know, to things with God, and every single time you just run into uh, somewhere you shouldn't be. And, uh, it's, and it's, it's a hilarious way to, uh, to think about that. So go ahead and look it up on YouTube and it's worth it. Yeah, it definitely, um, it definitely shows us the complexities to it. So just confess it, confess it. Like we just did with pastor Ketchemeyer with the, with the Athanasian creed, the Nicene creed and the apostles creed, and just let it be and say, thanks be to God at the end. Now here we have, uh, some very important distinctions. These three persons are of the same essence and power. Now, why is that important, Pastor? That, okay, that that this God is not like separate or one is weaker than the other. Why is that important? Yeah, right. And that's kind of what they're confessing as the church before them confessed that. And as we run into the heresies that they list out later, that's exactly the problem that they ran into where... Um, we had God, the father and God, the son, not having the same essence or power. And, you know, Jesus, someone's going to come along and say, well, he's not quite as powerful as the father or something like that. Not quite the same essence. And so that's where those, uh, errors come in. And so you have to start with this confession that all three have the same essence and power. And that's kind of what the Athanasian Creed goes on at length to confess that, um, you know, there's one, there's three, um, and they kind of have all these things in common, and yet they're distinct uh, somehow. And we can say some things, but uh, there's some things we can't say. 
And so as we continue to look, uh, it, it can be so easy for us to say, oh, since Jesus you know, uh, died on the cross, then therefore he is therefore weaker than the Father. And in, in, this, in the sense of this, that Jesus submitted is why he is weaker, but it's not because he does not have the same essence and power as God the Father. And this is why when we go to John 1, this is why Genesis 1 and John chapter 1 are so important to be able to read together because it, it, it speaks very clearly about Jesus being not only there at creation, but everything that was made, he was part of. Um, and so that power and, and how we look at it, we have to always make sure that, you know, okay, he has the same amount of power, but it does not mean that he didn't submit and to, to for the sake of you and I, for the sake of the world, excuse me, to save us, because um, we can easily fall into that. So the essence and power are the same. We use the word person, not because scripture says you have to use the word person, but because it really is probably the best way to explain it, even though that's a little clunky. I think we all would agree on that. And we use it to signify not part or quality in another, but that which subsists of itself. Now, that's a little bit confusing language. You, you want to break that down for us, that ending? Yeah, right. That which <laughs> subsists of itself. You're right. That's kind of a strange way to talk. But really, <laughs> when we think about God being completely um, self-sufficient, shall we say, like he doesn't need anything from the outside uh, to be who he is. Whereas, you know, we always need something, right? We got to eat, we got to drink, we need all these things. Like we came from our, our parents. It's not like we are eternal. And so um, God just is on his own. He doesn't really need anything from us. Uh, he certainly desires us, but it's not as if he would stop being God if we, you know, did or didn't do something. So I think that's what they're trying to get at there. What well, definitely shows that if there it was any desire to be fully independent as human beings, well, the only person that is fully independent would be God himself, <laughs> if yeah. you want to look at it that way. Um, and also to not try to separate the parts, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to try to separate them as if they're not always together, as if they're not always one, which is really hard for us to understand. I remember like in that quip and the um, the Patrick uh, Trinitarian talk on, on Lutheran satire, there is that little bit of like Transformer and, and Voltron <laughs> and these right. things like you can't you can't combine those things as well. So, like I said, anytime you try to make it a worldly entity, you're going to have a heresy and that's not good. So right now, let's just make it simple. And this goes back to the creeds as well, that we have one God, one essence, an eternal God of infinite power and wisdom, same essence, same one of power, three persons. Done. Maybe I, maybe I shouldn't ask you, do you have anything to add? <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I probably shouldn't. Otherwise, I'll get. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then we'll have an episode on Lutheran satire about <laughs> right. us anyways. Let's continue on on the next uh, section of page 31 about God, because now we have to break down some of the words um, and the names of, quote, heresies when we talk about the Trinitarian God, uh, because not only are these names valid then, but I would argue, and, and Pastor Busher and I were talking before the program, that these are still um, with us today and we can fall into it in our own lives. So let's continue on, on numbers five and six. Our churches condemn all heresies that arose against this article, such as the Manich Manichaeans, 
who assume that there are two principles, one God and one other evil. They also condemn the Valentinians, the Arians, Eunomians, Muslims, and all heresies such as these. Our churches also condemn the Samosatans, old and new, who contend that God is but one person. Though sophistry, they impiously argue that the Word and the Holy Spirit are not distinct persons. They say that the Word signifies a spoken word, and Spirit signifies motion created in things. So, not only do we confess, like you said, very simply what we believe, but also what we don't believe. And this is the this is very much so part of the life of the church as we look at Titus chapter 3 verses 10 through 11. <coughs> but he starts to specify certain one, the Manichaeans. Pastor, uh, tell us about them. Okay, good. Yeah, and I, <clears throat> maybe as we go into these uh, kind of one by one or name by name, one one maybe thing to keep in mind when it comes to heretics, you know, if you're going to call someone a heretic, you know, don't uh, take that lightly. Uh, what um, maybe is common is, you know, nobody just woke up one day is like, I'm going to be a heretic today, right? Nobody <laughs> started off uh, with that goal. Rather, um, kind of as the church has gone out through the the years as, as pastors tried to teach in good faith to their people, you know, some of them uh, explained things in this way, some explained them in that way. And then uh, there were times when they kind of went too far. And then we have these uh, church councils, you know, we mentioned Nicaea and Constantinople already, but they kind of went too far. And so they kind of had to rein it back in. Um, but oftentimes what's happening when there's a heresy is that um, there, there's a pastor or, or some churchman who's kind of worried about some truth about God and they want to protect that. But kind of when they do, they end up uh, falling off the deep end on the other side. So maybe for an example, you know, if you're, if you're worried about confessing God as just one God, you can maybe let the reality of the three persons kind of uh, fade a little bit. Or if you're over here trying to confess the three persons, then you almost go too far. And now you got three gods in, instead of one. And so, you know, the early church um, had, had the scriptures uh, to go on. Uh, but now we also use the wisdom of the, the folks before us who say, um, you know, we have some fences and we, we can't go past those fences. And so, you know, when we get to the, the Manichaeans, they're the, the first on, on the list, um, uh, we kind of run into that. So uh, here's what I um, found about the Manichaeans. And, and one of the features of, of the version of the Book of Concord that we have in the back are some uh, indexes or appendices, and you can look up most of these names and teachings, and they give you a brief definition. And so, kind of what is in the back, it says this: So, the Manichaeans is a religion founded by Manny, a guy who lives in the 200s. It's a dualistic philosophy of nature. Dualistic means there's like a good and a bad, um, uh, including. Gnostic, Zoroastrian, and Christian's elements. So it's all those mixed together. He says, he held that the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness were in conflict from eternity. Manichaeism spread over the Roman Empire and was a menace to the church. We also learn that Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, that bishop, he was a Manichaean in his youth and then converted to an Orthodox Christian later. And then when he became a uh, bishop, 
And so they're, they're referenced a few times throughout the book of Concord. Um, but maybe to dig in a little bit about what dualism is, you know, I love sci-fi. I love Star Wars. Uh, this is, <laughs> uh, this is dualism, right? You've got the good side of the force and the bad side of the force, and they're kind of at odds with each other. Um, and it's almost like the good and the evil are equal opposites where, you know, we think of God as almighty. We certainly wouldn't say that about the devil or any demons or, or sin that uh, it's not even close to being equal. God is almighty and, and no one else is. But this, this uh, uh, error of the Manichaeans um, has this dualistic philosophy of good and evil being equal opposites. And that's helpful because if you were to look at a typical typical TV show, you'll see the angel and the devil on someone's shoulder. And it's kind of that that's implying that understanding that basically uh, holiness and, and evil are constantly fighting with the same amount of power, where it's very clear from Scripture that the, the devil is always a step below, if you will, which is why his number 666 as opposed to 7, if you use that kind of language. But he's almost, one person put it this way, that he's always like a, a Rottweiler on a chain. <laughs> that he can't do anything unless God allows him to be let go. So he doesn't have the power. God has all authority. We don't have this dualism that Manichaeanism was doing. And, and why is that important for us to understand as Christians in, in our culture, especially? Yeah, I mean, if you kind of look around and you see these two opposing forces, I mean, this is kind of a conclusion that you could maybe arrive at without the revelation of scripture. Because if you look at some of the Eastern religions, if you've ever seen that yin and yang symbol where it's the black and the whites and it's this good and evil, you might almost come to this conclusion where you've got good and evil, but they're equal and opposites. And that's, I mean, in a way that's kind of scary because you don't really know who's going to win or the very best you could do is like, there's this balance where, you know, that's, that's really far from the gospel where uh, God is almighty and he is the victor, you know, in Easter that we uh, celebrate, he won. And it's, it's not even going to be a close fight, right? That he, he won completely and eternally. And I, I invite you, our listeners, as Pastor Busher um, highlighted, is in the back of the Reader's Edition. I, uh, I think it was 699 when it talks about the Manichaeans. You have a lot of persons and groups to highlight. So as we look at these, to reference that in your Reader's Edition that he just read as well. So we got the Manichaeans. Um, we also get to a few others. Uh, we have about eh, 50, 12 minutes left in our time, so we'll keep moving here. Is They also condemn the Valentinians. Who are they? Okay. Yeah, I, I tried to look that up a little bit too. Um, Valentinians, um, what kind of what it says in the back, they're a sect of Gnosticism led by a guy named Valentinus, an ancient heresy mingling Jewish, Christian, and Greek philosophies into kind of this new um, combination. Um, and maybe one of the characteristics of Gnosticism that um, sticks out most to me is basically the idea that uh, spiritual things are good and physical things are bad. And so like um, what usually ends up happening, we'll say something like, you know, the spirit inside the person is the good thing, but they're trapped in this prison of a body or something like that. Then when, then when the person dies, they're freed from that physical prison. 
you know, there's a lot of belief systems that value that uh, go that way. Whereas, you know, we acknowledge that God is the creator and creation is also good, that our, our bodies are good. And the most obvious example of that is Jesus received a body when he was incarnate, right? That, that should, uh, be a big flashing sign that says, you know, God's creation is good and, and human bodies are good. And so this is, I mean, it has implications such as the sacraments, that if you don't believe that physical things are good, then the Lord's Supper and baptism, you're going to diminish the importance of that because physical isn't good. So you, you can see um, snippets of that within the Christian church as well. So we have um, the, the Valentinians. Um, so you have a very misunderstanding of, of who God is and who Jesus is in relation to one another. And then you get to one that really is probably very well known, or at least you've heard of it before, is the Arians. Who were the Arians? Yeah, right. Probably if everyone in this list, I mean, I mean, we'll get to Muslims. I mean, that's that's well known as well. But Arians um, is probably the most well known of of any heresy if you've heard of one. So it's named after a guy named Arius, and he even says in your back he's an arch heretic. I don't know how you get that title, <laughs> but but he has it. So. Um, an arch heretic. Basically, his error is that he denied the divinity of Christ. Uh, he kind of has a famous line that said there was a time when Christ was not. So you had God the Father, and no one questioned his divinity ever. Uh, but then a lot of the errors throughout church history, they're going to say something wrong about Jesus or something wrong about the Holy Spirit. And Arius was kind of the, the first famous guy that denies the divinity of Jesus. So he gets that, that label of our heretic, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And that's something I remember learning about this and the time when Jesus was not just kind of shows you that he was not on the same level as God. So he was somehow, you could say, well, he was a lot like God, which then causes major issues that if he dies on the cross, that if he's not fully God, then did he really die for my sins? Did he die for the world? And you know, it brings up a lot of questions. Was his blood the kind of blood that could redeem all of us? Or do we have to keep getting more of another kind of blood? So it, it brought up so many great questions that by the Holy Spirit, the Lord led the church to say, no, we have to speak how scripture speaks. We'll keep moving on here, even though we could talk about Arianism forever. The next one is uh, Eunomians. Yeah, that's, that's a one that, I was probably the least familiar with on the list, but Correct. here's what it Me too. here's what it says. Uh, Eunomius, the guy it's named after, he's an, he's listed as an Arian heretic, so we're kind of in the same vein as uh, Arius. Um, and he was a a bishop who was refuted by some of the early church fathers. He basically said the Father and the Son had two different natures, and so you know, kind of on the the spectrum of <laughs> Trinitarian heresies. Um, he kind of went off on that area where the father and son were so separate, then they get two different natures. We kind of confess that one essence before he would kind of reject that and say there's there's two essences, I guess. So he's in the Aryan camp. Yeah, and that's why when we look on the other section or before this, you know, when it talks about the three persons are of the same essence and power, or God is one divine essence, clearly that was put in there because of the Eunomians who had a, 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 a misunderstanding of the truth of what Scripture tells us. 
Next one is, I think we all know of it, which is interesting to me because I don't know in our culture today, would we call Muslims a heresy? Right. You know, we just don't, we don't talk in that language, but um, a Muslim, um, not only now, but in those days as well. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That usually, you know, uh, if you're going to talk about Muslims in school, you'd take a world religions class. They're not going to be listed under Christian heresies or something like that. But yeah, that's, if you have to put them somewhere, I, there is a, a place for them, so to speak, in this listing. And, and really what it comes down to is, is what they say about Jesus. And this is maybe a, a good place to, you know, plant your flag um, as confessing the Trinity that, you know, there's lots of people out there. Uh, maybe they believe in lots of gods. Certainly some people who say there is no God. But then there are obviously a lot of religions that say there is one God, right? That's that's Christians, that's Muslims, that's uh, Jews. And so uh, Muslims would agree with us. There is one God. They would even say, you know, the one God is the God of Abraham. Uh, but if you keep digging a little bit farther, uh, you'll find out where the differences are. And it's almost always, what do you say about Jesus? And so that's exactly where this happens. It's technically an Arian heresy because they would say something like, Jesus is a prophet, maybe the best of the prophets, but they would not say that he is God. And so that's a lowering of God, the son, the second person of the Trinity. And so you could put it in, in the group of Arian heresy as well. And finally, we get to the last one that is listed. Um, I, I know I said this wrong, but it, it comes from Paul of Samuel Seta, um, which is another early heretic that we have listed. What'd you find on them? Yeah, right. I, yeah, I wasn't quite sure how to pronounce it either. So I'll, <laughs> I'll just follow your lead. But yeah, right. That again, kind of going in the the direction of the teaching of uh, of a Christian that, that went too far. It's, it's kind of the, uh, the other extreme of the eunomians. Here we have um, what's called monarchism, like mono is one, arche being leader or ruler, that we have one God and one being, one person. And so almost to a denial of the Trinity, just to say, you know, God is, is one being, one essence, but also one person. So it's kind of going too far in the other direction. And as we look at all of this, I would encourage our listeners, one, always go back to the creeds. Two, when you look, obviously we'll be confessing this throughout the Book of Concord, but the small catechism from um, Concordia Publishing House in the back has a, a, just a, a wealth of resources, scripture passages that points to the truth of the Holy Scriptures and in simplistic form so that when you are brought with the questions of well, what do you mean the Holy Spirit is God? How about it's just a power or that Jesus isn't really God and to be able to speak about when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I mean, those kind of passages are all over the place in the small catechism, the mo especially the most recent one that came out in 2017. And so at the very end, it just speaks about how uh, there's we can get very confused about all of this, because at the end of this study, you can get lost, like, am I a Manichaean? I don't, I don't think I am, <laughs> or am I? You know, usually don't say you're Muslim, but, or I'm, am I an Aryan because I said this once or whatever it might be? But this is why we don't focus all of our attention on the heresies. We have to make that proclamation. But we always go back to the simplistic truth of what Scripture tells us as confessed in this article. So, Pastor, with uh, only about a minute left in our time, 
How would you summarize our time and why it's important for our listeners today to clearly confess our triune God? Yeah, maybe just to to wrap it up. I mean, one of the things we almost always do when we gather together for worship is we confess a creed, right? Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, if you're like us, we do the Athanasian Creed once a year on on Trinity Sunday, and it almost might seem like why do why do we got to do this you know, every single week? But um, the truth that's in these creeds and the summaries of who God is and what He has done, you know, what what is God like? Um, that it is something that we can never uh, completely understand or, or or get past or leave behind. It's something that um, is certainly a mystery, uh, but we also are able to say some things, namely that uh, what has been revealed to God, uh, what has been revealed about God to us, uh, most especially in Jesus, that we have a God who created us, but not only that, who loves us, who uh, sustains us, stays with us, and even has promised us eternal life uh, to be with him forever. You know, that's the kind of God we have. And so we always need to be continually reminded of that because there's still folks today who are saying things about God that are not in the Bible. So we really need to know what we believe and confess. That's why we uh, sing about it, uh, confess it, uh, and, and learn about it all the time. Pastor Jonathan Busher from Zion Lutheran Church in Mount Pulaski, Illinois, confessing the truth of our triune God from the Augsburg Confession, Article 1. Pastor Busher, thank you for your faithful teaching on Concord Matters. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finnern. Thank you for joining us, and the Lord keep you safe.